heaven, we're so grateful for the opportunity we have uh, to gather together as men and to think through what it means to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, uh, to be part of a church, a family where we love one another and we want to see each other stirred up to godliness and to good deeds. We pray that this time together would, would bear that kind of fruit, where we would uh, see the uh, this morning, especially with my, with my talk about discipleship in the church and what the church has to do to with, with discipleship, I pray that you would help us to come to our worship services and be a part of this church with renewed vigor and to see the great glory that you have given to us through our liturgy and the, uh, the glory that there is in Christ and the joy that we get to enter into because, uh, because of Jesus. But Lord, we do uh, want to lift up to you this morning Bill Montgomery, uh, who Stella's sister, uh, uh, Stella's brother, as she uh, now goes to visit with him, Lord, he seems to be on death's door and has been that way for a while. Lord, we pray for this man. We ask that you would please open his eyes to his need for a savior. We pray that you would sustain his life, that you would give him more years, that you would heal him of this, uh, this malady that he's been going through, that you would use the doctors to, uh, and, and their wisdom to, um, to take care of his body. And we pray for Stella as she speaks to him. We pray that she would speak life into his world and help him to see that there is, there really is joy in Jesus. We pray that he would see that and humble himself and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Please have mercy, Lord. Now we ask that you bless our time and be with us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So my topic this morning is discipleship in the church. Will you, did you start the recording? All right, thank you. Um, before we get started, I'd like to recommend a few books to you. I brought, only brought four. <laughs> the first one, this, this book is by N.T. Wright. It's called After You Believe. This is N.T. Wright's book on really sanctification. What, what happens after you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the kinds of things that um, a, a believer does. Actually, it's an excellent volume. I let a, uh, an Assemblies of God pastor in Colorado, uh, borrow this volume, and he loved it. He, he thought this was a, just one of the greatest books that he had read. Another book that uh, I'll be stealing from a lot this morning is this book here by Alexander Schmemann. This book is called For the Life of the World. Uh, Alexander Schmemann was a 20th century Eastern Orthodox uh, theologian, and he writes this book, which goes through the various sacraments of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that might sound like a topic you're not really interested in, <laughs> but I hope to open up a few things from this book this morning that will maybe whet your appetite. His chapter on Mary is fantastic, uh, worth the price of the book. So um, we'll, that's, that's one I'll be uh, borrowing from. Uh, another book... This one is by Joseph Pieper. Joseph Pieper is a, um, he's, he's dead now. <laughs> he was a Roman Catholic theologian, uh, a Thomistic scholar. So he loves everything by Thomas Aquinas. Joseph Pieper writes about. This book is called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And this coincides very much with what I'll be talking about this morning, about what our worship service is all about. And he argues that leisure is what worship is. It's kind of this effortless activity that uh, makes you receptive to what God is doing in your world. And that really establishes a place for you to begin to live a life of joy and build culture. Um, 
a lot of philosophy in there if you're interested in that. He quotes Thomas Aquinas all over the place. Uh, but really, really fun book. And then finally, of course, I have to recommend a book by James Jordan. This one is Primeval Saints. I'm going to open up a few things from this book this morning. Primeval Saints by James Jordan. And look at this. I got his autograph in my copy. So uh, eat your heart out. Um, this book is, it goes through the uh, certain early figures in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, and um, opens up, maybe from a perspective that you hadn't considered before, what was happening in those times. Really uh, exciting. You probably wouldn't agree with everything in this book, but great food for thought. A good conversation starter um, book. Highly recommended. So thinking about discipleship in the church, of course there are lots of different ideas about discipleship in the church. The church in our modern times, has some very popular concepts, and uh, some of those we might rehearse this morning. Think about uh, churches who have, that you're maybe encouraged to have an accountability partner. I remember in high school I had an accountability group, which wasn't really that useful because they were just a bunch of high school boys who were supremely immature and not very helpful. Uh, There's also the concept of, you might have heard this, it's a little bit cheesy, but everyone should have a Timothy in their life, somebody you can disciple, take under your wing and shepherd and teach, and also a Paul in your life you can go to and be mentored by. Uh, that's, that's an idea that um, has some, some good thoughts to it. Another concept is seeing the church as a hospital, a place where people can come to get healing and, uh, and so forth. And then in these larger churches, there is the idea of creating small groups. You know, the pastor has 5,000 people to take care of. There's no way he can do that. So we divide the church up into these small groups. And really, the leader of your small group becomes sort of your pastor. And if you get to meet the pastor, well, that's, he's like a celebrity, you know. Um, all these have some value to them. I don't think that we should throw any of them out altogether. They especially have value for the individual. And that may be where the weakness is. I think we need something that is a little bit more comprehensive than that because the church is not made up of just a bunch of individuals. When we gather together, we cease being individuals. We become one body of Christ. Um, So they they have the value for the individual. That's my, my point about them. What I'd like to do this morning is a couple of things. First, I want to take a tour through some sections of the Old Testament. I'd like to show you certain characters in the Old Testament and examine a little bit about them. I don't intend this to be comprehensive at all because I've only picked out four uh, characters in the Old Testament to look at. There's many more that you could uh, fit into this category and and learn from, glean from them about what discipleship should look like in the church. And we want to think about what what, what was going on in those Old Testament contexts that can inform us now in our modern context for what the church should be and is doing in terms of discipleship. Uh, secondly, after that, I'd like to get you into Alexander Schmemann's book a little bit about what is happening in our liturgy. And my intention with this lecture is to help you see the beauty and the glory of our liturgy. Because so often, as we were discussing last night, things get stale. In a, where in our walk and the habits that we have, they can, there can become a staleness about it. And that can even happen if you're not thinking enough, uh, not, not thinking properly about our liturgy. So I want you to, after this time, see that we need to, we need to really renew our, I, I said it in my prayer, renew our vigor with our, 
our liturgy. And so to come at it this, uh, this coming week and in the weeks to come with that greater energy that may have been missing from your, your worship in, in the past. So let's dig into this. The first, the four characters that I want to look at are Abram, Moses, David, and Elisha. I thought later I probably could have fit Daniel or one of the post-exilic prophets in there somewhere, but I chose these four. Um, maybe we can talk about in our discussion time uh, a little bit more about other characters and what they might teach us about liturgy and uh, discipleship. So starting with Abram. Abram, of course, is brought out of kind of the the destruction that is wrought by the, the, the crumbling of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. God comes down and judges the Tower of Babel that men are trying to reach up to heaven and make a name for themselves. God confuses their language, but it's not just their language that he confuses. He confuses the, the word that's used for language is their lip, their mouth, their confession, in other words, the way they think is completely changed. And their, their, their ways of thinking are confused against one another. And this kind of plays itself out in the history of philosophy. You know, there's always this discussion about the one and the many. What is reality made up of? Is reality just one thing and the, and the dis- distinction between us? Is that just an illusion? Or is it the other way around? Is, is reality just a, a bunch of tiny, tiny particles? And the unity that we have, is that an illusion? So there's these, these uh, debates that have gone on throughout the history of philosophy. And those kinds of thoughts have, uh, and other thoughts have been dividing people against one another. And out of that chaos and confusion, God calls Abram, come up out of the land of the Chaldees, come to the land that I will show you. And so Abram goes in chapter 12 of Genesis, he, he goes through the land that God is promising him. In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 12, you can see what, what Abram is doing there. I'm not going to read that, but just for your reference, that's where it is. Abram is walking across the land. This is an act of faith that he does, first of all. He goes to spy out the land. He checks it out. And on his way, he does something very important. And that is he he builds altars. He builds two principal altars in the land. And those two places where he builds those altars become important centers for worship for the rest of the history of the Old Testament. But what's he doing with these altars? Uh, these altars, he is claiming the land for Yahweh. That's one thing he's doing. James Jordan says that in Primeval Saints. And the other thing he's doing is he's evangelizing. Rabbis have considered Abram uh, historically to be an evangelist, the principal evangelist there in the, in the book of Genesis. In verse 5 of chapter 12, it says that he takes the people who he it says maybe gathered to himself in Haran or the people, the, the word there is the souls that he made literally in Haran. He brought with him into the land. How do you make souls? Well, obviously him and Sarai were having babies. No, <laughs> Sarai was barren. <laughs> that was not the case. He was making souls through teaching through instruction, discipleship, evangelism, gathering a people to himself. 
And then as he goes into this land, he's establishing these altars. These altars aren't just there for him to call upon God. That's the language it uses in our translations. It says, and there he called on the name of the Lord. A better translation of that is, and there he proclaimed the name of the Lord. These altars that he's establishing are centers of worship for the people in the land. In fact, the in one of the one of the places there in that in that section, verses six through eight, is called the Oak of More. M O R E. More. You might think, well, More, capital M. That that must be a, somebody's name. There's this guy named Murray that lived there, and that was his oak. No, that's not what More means. More in Hebrew means proclamation. The oak of proclamation. He is proclaiming the name of Yahweh to this people in the land of Canaan. And people are uniting themselves with him. The result of his teaching is that people gather to him. In chapter 14, you see Amorites who are gathered around him. Chapter 14 in Genesis is an important chapter. That's where war breaks out. Chedorlaomer, the, this, uh, this great king, sets together these other kings and they attack. These, these, uh, these, there's this huge war. Lot is taken prisoner. There's destruction throughout the land. But there are those who are not affected by that destruction, that chaos and the war that's going on. And they're with Abram. There are these Amorites who, are, who have associated themselves, united themselves with Abram. They are secure. They are protected from that warfare that's going on. So that's a key concept there that I'd like us to, to remember. Safety. Discipleship is a place of safety. The discipleship that Abram provides for these people gives them a, a place where they have protection. What does God say to Abram? I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Abram is later called a prince of God by the Hittites in chapter 23 and verse 6. He is known by the land, the people of the land and the Canaanites as a prophet of God. Astounding. So that's, that's Abram. Think of the, the, the concept of safety with Abram. At least that's one of the major things that's there with him. Uh, the next character I'd like us to look at is Moses. With Moses, God is making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The people of God, the Israelites, are set apart for a purpose. And that purpose is to be brought near to God. And that's really the concept that I want you to remember with Moses. So with, with Abram, it's safety. With, with Moses, it is nearness to God. Of course, God brings about these ten plagues on the land of Egypt. The first three plagues, Israel also experiences. But after the first three plagues, after that first wave of three plagues, in the second wave, God makes a distinction. He sets them apart from the Egyptians. They do not experience the terror and the horror of those plagues that fall on the rest of the Egyptians. God gives them a Passover meal and protects them with a Passover lamb. The blood displayed on the doorposts, giving them uh, a, a, this distinction, uh, setting them apart. 
And also there's the crossing of the Red Sea, which is the kind of the final setting apart. You want to see the distinction between the, the Israelites and the Egyptians. Look at the Red Sea. The Red Sea is the place that saves the Israelites, and it is the place that condemns and destroys the Egyptian army. Further in the wilderness, God is guiding them by his presence, the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud, the cloud of uh, pill, the pillar of cloud by day and the, the pillar of fire by night. God, through Moses, instructs them how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where God will come down and dwell and his presence will be with his people in this tent, in this tabernacle where they can actually come into the presence of God, this place that is as, as heaven on earth. And then he develops the priesthood and the vestments and so forth for a glory and a covering. The, uh, the high priest has these, these certain things that are, that are on him uh, and, that, and those rules are set up under Moses. So bring, draw near to God. That's, that's a very important part of discipleship as well. Third is David. <clears throat> With David, you could say a lot about him. What I'd, I want to focus on is the development of music in worship. David, uh, Peter Lightheart points this out in his book, From Silence to Song. It's a fantastic book. Where he talks about David in this lit, kind of liturgical reform that that he brings about he acts as a new moses figure advancing the liturgical concepts of song into the worship of israel singing god's word is a very important part of discipleship that we can easily forget about you know ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 what does paul say about singing we exhort each other by singing I heard Ken Myers say one time, where else can you go where people gather together to sing? There are not many places that have this kind of community where it's a community that is a singing community. And that's a principal part of our discipleship and the church's discipleship. And thanks to David, or largely in, in part to, to, largely to, to David's work in uh, creating the Psalter, we have the basis for the singing of, the, of, the, of our uh, modern context. And last, uh, Elisha. The ministry of Elisha comes, of course, in the time of the kings, right around the end of uh, Ahab's reign. Elijah, of course, ascends up into heaven and Elisha's ministry begins. Elisha's ministry is one that is characterized by newness of life. His ministry was a time of spiritual renewal. There were these, these groups of communities that were beginning to spring up around Elisha. They were called the sons of the prophets. You read about them doing things like building new cities for themselves. Remember the man who lost his axe head and, and Elisha makes the axe head float? They were building a city at that time. Why were they building cities? Because these renewal communities were springing up. They were building uh, what may be considered a city of refuge. Places where new life, where there was once only death, are starting to show up. In fact, the things that he does, the miraculous work that Elisha did, there's death in the pot, the food that they're eating. Elisha brings life to that. 
He makes it life-giving soup. <laughs> the waters of Jericho are bitter. Elisha sweetens the water where it now gives life. The widow's son has died. Elisha stretches out his body on the sun and brings him, revives this boy. Even his bones after he's dead. Somebody falls into the pit where Elisha's bones are. He comes back to life. Elisha's ministry is life. New life. So these are the, the four themes that I want you to remember from those four characters. One is uh, Abram is safety. Moses, nearness to God. David, singing. And Elisha, newness of life. New life. All these concepts from the Old Testament are given their full expression in the modern church through liturgy. And especially... In the sacraments, Alexander Schmemann in his book, For the Life of the World, has a lot to say to us about what is involved in the liturgy. And so for the rest of this lecture, I hope to convince you to see our liturgy as the primary way our congregation is discipled by Jesus. And I hope we can discuss what it means about the way we participate in the liturgy and why you should participate vigorously. I keep using that word. Uh, I'll try not to be repetitive on that one. So what's the alternative to vigorous liturgy? What would the church be without that? I don't think it would be much more than a club of like-minded spiritual people, uh, but the church, of course, is far more than that. Shmemon introduces his chapter on the Eucharist by pointing out just how tragic the death of Jesus was. So think about this. Jesus was the perfect expression of life as God had intended it to be. Up until the point, up until the time of Jesus, all of, all humanity had were people who failed to measure up to that standard of perfection. And finally he's here. Remember Pilate in John chapter 19 when he presents Jesus to the crowds. What did he say? Behold, the man. And truer words were never spoken. This is, this is the man. This is what we're supposed to be. This is the one who has finally measured up to what mankind was intended to be from the beginning. The fullness of mankind. This is him. He represents hope for humanity. He is now, this man is someone who we can live up to. We've never seen an example of what the perfect man is before. And now we see it. Jesus is the man. He's more of a man than any of us will ever be. A man without sin. We no longer have the excuse that we, well, I don't know what what the perfect man looks like, so how could I possibly be it? He's right there. Behold the man. And what does the world do with the perfect man? John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. Yet the world did not know him. Jesus, the true life of the world, 
is rejected by the world. And in that moment, the world lost all hope of joyful existence. This is very much related to what Pastor Booth was talking about last night. You've got to die. The, the, the call to discipleship is the call to come and die. Jesus dies on the cross. His crucifixion has this finality to it. It is something that cannot be reversed. And you can't get around it. Shemimon says that Christianity does not have to condemn the world. It condemned itself. And because of that, that rejection of Jesus, the world can never have true joy. Thankfully, it doesn't end there because the gospel message is this. (laughs) The gospel message begins with an announcement. Remember when the angels showed up to the the shepherds in Luke chapter 2? What is impossible for men is possible with God, right? Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Joy that's impossible. What is joy? Joy, uh, Christianity is the only possible way to have joy. And Jesus invites us to enter into his joy. The world has no joy. Only condemnation. And yet we live in the world. We live in this place, in this world, where there is no joy. Joy is somewhere else. It's some other place. It's with, it's with Jesus in heaven. That's where joy is. So if we're invited, if Jesus is inviting us to enter into his joy, we have to get to where Jesus is. We have to get to heaven. How do we get there? It's through liturgy. This is what Alexander Schmemann says about liturgy. Liturgy is an action by which a group of people become something corporately which they had not been as a mere collection of individuals. A whole greater than the sum of its parts. In this act... We become what we're supposed to be in Christ. That's the church's discipleship. The liturgy, especially the Lord's Supper, is the entrance into, it's the entrance of the church into the joy of our Lord. You realize that? When you come into church on a Sunday morning and you have to do the responsive reading for the call to worship. You, know, you kind of read like this. That doesn't fit. <laughs> what are the steps to get there? The steps to get to this heavenly place? Well, we have to go on a journey to heaven. And that's where liturgy takes us. It starts on Sunday morning. It starts when you leave your bed. 
when you leave your home. Heaven's not here. We've got to go somewhere else. You can't stay in bed. Heaven's not there. You have to convince yourself of that sometimes. You have to go to this place that's different from your ordinary space. Once the call to worship is uttered, you are no longer an individual. Quote, liturgy begins then as a real separation from the world. Unquote. So now, the Eucharist. Just before the Lord's Supper, we have a verbal exchange with our pastor, which you can probably recite by heart. I hope you can. What does the pastor say? Shout it out. Lift up your hearts. And then how do we respond? We lift them up to the Lord. What are we saying? We're in the heavenly places. We're there. John Chrysostom said this. He said, what do I care about heaven when I myself have become heaven? We have followed Christ in his ascension and he has accepted us at at table in his kingdom. We are beyond time and space. And so we respond. Uh, Then the the pastor says, so we lift them up to the Lord. Then the pastor says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. You know what? How do you say give thanks in Greek? Eucharist. Eucharist means giving thanks. And that's the word for the Lord's Supper. We respond to the pastor saying, let us give thanks to the Lord our God by saying, it is good and right to give him thanks and praise. And different churches have slightly different language here. Some of them say it is meat and right. Why do we say that? Why do we say it is good and right to give him thanks and praise? Because we're standing before the throne of God. Or we're seated before the throne of God. I think we're still standing at that point, right? And guess what? Your sins are forgiven. You're standing before God with your sins forgiven. Actual joy has been restored to you. A joy that's impossible in the world. In the liturgy, you have it. And the only right thing to do, the only meat and right thing to do in that time, is to give thanks. It is good. It is right. That's the only right thing to do. And so then, we have this, as Joseph Pieper calls it, this, this effortless activity, which is a kind of work but it's leisure where we're not on vacation, but we have this effortless activity where we are now receptive to the good things that God is giving us. And we eat and we drink and we're feasting on Christ. And there is this, it's, it's like this festival time as Joseph Pieper calls it, 
What do you do during a festival? A festival is a time where you just lavishly <laughs> uh, enjoying yourself. What do we do at Easter? You know, this, the place is lined up with desserts. There's way too many things to eat. We come into this building where there is this unnecessary lavishness. We have this expensive piano. How much did we spend on this piano? What a waste of money. We have these nice, well, they're not, they're not there now, but violins. <laughs> Some of the men bring violins right now. The pastor wears this, this different outfit. Those tunics are not cheap. We have these real fancy, what do we call them? Are they pyramids? Is that? <laughs> these things that are hanging off of the pulpit. And man, how much did we spend on this floor? Was it $60,000? What a waste. But we wouldn't have it any other way. Because this is the space where we get to be in the heavenly places with our God. We want the best piano we can get. We want the best kind of singing that we can have. Because we have a Savior who's given everything to us. And he is discipling you at that time. This is the church discipling you. The ministry of the pastor is also part of the ministry of the church in discipleship. And it is an extension of the liturgy. He is bringing Christ to you when he comes to visit you in your home. When he says hard things to you. And that's good. So let's review those Old Testament examples. I'm, I still have some time. <laughs> I thought I had way too much material here. So we have those Old Testament examples. So safety. And we have safety because Jesus has claimed us for his own. He has, in the waters of baptism, Jesus is making this statement about you. He's saying, this one is mine. Hands off. With Moses, the nearness to God, again, bringing you through the waters of baptism, he brings you near to himself. He invites you into his very throne room to ascend up into heaven with him and to share a meal with him. You are near to God. You're as close to God as you can be as you take his body and blood into yourself. Singing, we sing. We sing the psalms, we sing hymns, we sing the songs of scripture. And what do we have? We have new life. Or the ministry of the, the true Elisha, the final Elisha, Jesus, who's given himself for us so that we now can have new life. And he calls us to that new life. And that's really what, the part, what, what discipleship is all about. It's these people who are, I think Pastor Booth has said this before, outposts of heaven. We're people who are joyful, impossibly. Uh, we have all this in Christ and in our liturgy. So what does that say about the way you participate in liturgy? What is your attitude towards our liturgy? Um, how is your joy? Are you a person who is characterized by joy? 
Or do you need the church to continue to disciple you in that? For me, I need this all every week, which I'm glad we have it. We have a time where God is ministering to us and discipling us every week, reminding us again and again, look, you are not your own. This is who you are. You are in Christ. You have been, you have entered into the joy of Christ. And therefore my life should be one that's filled with joy, a giving of myself in this uh, excited activity of life. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> this is my, my conclusion is the end. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me try to wrap this up a little bit here. Uh, so I guess what, what I'd like to think of you to think about is, are there, are there other Old Testament characters that you think can help us in, in thinking more about what the church does in terms of discipleship, uh, what other thoughts do you have about some of the things that I've said? What questions do you have about uh, these concepts here? Jonathan. Can you expand a little bit more on the idea that we, we're not individuals in worship? I, mean, I, I see you. I know who you are in worship. It's not everybody just loses their features and we're just going to do the law. But how, how do we, in heaven, we're still individuals? Yeah. How, can you unpack that a little bit more? I can try. Uh, what I what I think the best way to view that is through the church as a family. It's a family entity. We're no longer individuals in that sense. We're part of the body of Christ. I think it's First Corinthians and is it chapter ten where we are compared to a loaf. We're all part of the same loaf. But I don't think that means that our our distinction as individuals completely dissolves. It does make us part of the the one body of Christ. It's hard to hard for me to get more specific than that. I, and I, I think you're right. We don't say that, well, I, I'm, now I'm you. It's, it's not that kind of blending into one another that we have. But uh, does that help? Yeah. <laughs> uh, would it be fair to say it's more of an adding to than taking away? We're, we're not taking away our individuality, but we're, we're adding that we're all bound together as, as a body of Christ. We're, we're not all the same parts of the body. Yeah. We have different That's, even, in, even in worship, is there, is there a difference between being one body in worship and one body out, outside of worship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I, I do think that there is, there's something that's taken away from us, though. Because in, in uh, I think it's in Exodus, where the, there's, there are fires that, you know, you have your individual home hearth fires. And the command is, don't, uh, what, what's the word, don't. Poke your, don't don't make your fire more, <laughs> because uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, don't kindle your own fire or stoke it. Stoke it. That's the word. Don't stoke your own fire to to make that individual home fire big, because what's important is the the one altar, the fire that's there at the at the altar, at the tabernacle. Uh, so that that becomes the family hearth on that on the Sabbath day, and the rest of the week those hearths can be stoked and, and brought to greater flame. So there's a, a diminishing of that and more of a focus on the one gathering together. And we do that here when we, when we gather together for our, our fellowship time after, after our worship service. We don't, I mean, there's no obligation. You don't have to stay here to have the, the one meal together. But we do share in this one uh, kind of a love feast that we have together. It's part of that. Lee, did you have some insight on that? I just think it's helpful to think about the one 
togetherness in worship kind of following the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul's kind of analogy in chapter 6 and 7 of the bride of Christ, the, the, the actual body of, of Christ in chapters 10 and 11 and 12, the thing is one meaning to it. I'm taking the example of the, Paul's kind of using the first analogy Yeah, good thought. So the bride of Christ concept, and we are we're united to that to Christ as as His body. Um, and there's other imagery that's used, which is helpful. You know, military imagery. We are an army marching together. We are a family. Uh, those, those concepts there are, are helpful. Does that, does that help to answer the question, Stan? Also, like the hymn with many parts. You know, everybody's got a different part, and by itself wouldn't quite sound right. But you put them all together, and it's perfection. Yeah. That's that's a good a good analogy too. That reminds me also of the of the Trinity. You know, there's there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one God, right? Um, the 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 best analogy that I've seen of the Trinity is is music, and that is uh, you think of a chord, a three note chord. They don't those those notes are individual notes, but together there's a harmony and a fullness of the sound where the 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 notes play off of and fill one another out. Uh, so we're kind of reflecting the Trinity in, in that sense, and, 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 and through music, uh, that's a really great analogy. Pastor Booth? Hey, Roy, you got something else on that? No, I don't have anything. I had a question, maybe some practical suggestions on how, I'm going to pick maybe three things, uh, we can pick any elements of worship, but how can we come tomorrow and get more out, out of this and give more, uh, both, because uh, it's a giving and a getting, because when we give, we receive. So what should we bring to um, our singing? Mm-hmm. What should we bring to our listening? And what should we bring by the time we get to the Lord's table? How should we, what should our uh, frame of mind, our perspective be on what has happened and what, and what is happening? Yeah. Great questions. Uh, that would be great for a discussion. What, what are some thoughts that, that you guys have on, on that? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm touching on what Randy said. I'm touching on something you, you touched on. Being older, okay, I think David can say this. Randy can probably say this just in our own home. I've come to have a totally different concept and approach to the Lord's Supper. Because when my family comes to my house, Lee comes and all the grandchildren come, and we sit down at the table, it's noisy. (laughs) Okay? It's noisy. And when they were little, some of them had to be disciplined. Okay? But sitting at the table, baby, 
and you can sit back and enjoy. And I think that I see now in the Lord's Supper, when we go to the Father's table, He can sit back and enjoy us. Yeah, that's that's a great point. The Father is that's that's beautiful because the Father does enjoy us. He he loves to be with us. Uh, he sings over us. <laughs> <laughs> that's great so enjoyment is something that we can bring to the table with uh with our, our liturgy what's something else that we can we can bring to our worship that's practical something that passed the question with pastor booth that is that the loss of regard for liturgy really for when you say liturgy, I think you mean basically meeting together as the corporate body of Christ, uh, more so than the particular elements of liturgy, which go into making that up. But I just think about the uh, regard or lack thereof that most of our Western society has, uh, and the implications that I think about, you know, a Christian church in uh, Nigeria, maybe, or Venezuela, or China, North Korea, where I've read that. Christians occupy the same park bench. They, there's a communion that goes on. Yeah. But uh, but uh, the uh, you think about those uh, places in the world where the church is persecuted, and would they be so lackadaisical about being in attendance? And what we've done to emasculate ourselves as a church in America and around the West. You think about the, particularly the Catholic cathedrals in Europe that are really more tourist destinations. Mm-hmm. But uh, but what we give up in America uh, because we don't regard I mean, almost anything is a threat to our attendance. Almost any distraction or any alternative activity uh, will draw us away. Uh, and what that says about ourselves and what that also does to the strength of the church. Yeah, great point. Pastor Booth? And we do it a cappella, and we do it loud, and 
It is. It is discipleship. It is pushing me forward in Christ to be with you, to be together, and to do this, to do something I cannot do alone. Mm-hmm. I can sing the doxology alone, but you wouldn't want to hear it. <laughs> but when I sing it with you, and we sing it all together, even the bad voices are swallowed up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and it illustrates why as we need to not be individuals all the time. And when we come together, we are greater than the sum of our parts. We're not just adding up all the individuals. Suddenly, it's a multiplying factor. And if, if we heard every person sing the doxology individually, even if they could be on pitch, uh, it, there's nothing near the glory of the corporate singing and the encouragement and the joy that that brings uh, to one another. Yeah. Something that you said about uh, singing with understanding, What I, I made this my practice in, uh, in Meeker. When we would, I mean, I was the, I was the accompaniment. I had my guitar with, <laughs> to play along with it. Um, so I, I took the time to say, okay, we're going to turn in your, in your hymnal to this hymn. And then I would say, now, here's what this hymn is about. Notice this line right here. That's kind of the, the heart of this hymn. So we're going to be singing about these things. I give a quick little rundown of certain concepts that were in that hymn. And that, that helped the congregation to sing with understanding. They knew what they were saying going into this hymn as they were, as they were singing it. And that, it, it, it helped that congregation to, to get into the, the attitude of what we, were, what we were talking about. I'm not saying that we have to do that, but... Um, it's that kind of intentionality with our, our singing that we need to have when, you know, actually pay attention. What is, what is it that I'm saying here um, is, is helpful. Amen. Right. It's a little different than the trajectory of this previous conversation, but I wanted to throw it out there. I don't have time to develop, I'm sure. But um, your original question was about Old Testament characters. Yeah, yeah. Adam comes to mind for me, especially with respect to Sabbath and uh, work. And I think... Uh, I know that uh, this is something I've thought about uh, probably the last five years very heavily uh, my, in my own experience, and that is uh, I think we're confused about work, and I think that confused, confusion plays into our confusion about Sabbath. That's true. And about worship. I think work and worship and the relationship between the two and a proper understanding of the two go hand in hand, and it's something I've uh, considered, and I think with Adam, Yeah. And the harmony between the yeah. two and the proper balance of them. And, um, of course, we fail, not as we do. But an example of getting work right to really get the Sabbath right. I think we're confused on work. You're right. That would be great to develop. We are over time. <laughs> so, sorry, we're out of time. Can't answer that question. <laughs> All right, so let's let's pray, and then uh, we'll take a quick break. Uh, let's 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 have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for uh, our time this morning to talk about the church and what you are doing through the church, and especially in our liturgy and uh, the Eucharist, and how we uh, get to enter into your joy. We pray that you would can you would continue to work in us to make us increasingly people who are joyful people, and spread that joy to those around us uh, who do not know that joy. 
And we pray that your kingdom would grow as a result of the ministry of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.